0: Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. We do not have uh, any Alexi today. Um, we are uh, we've got a substitute host, so to speak, in the form of uh, David Dan, my boss. So we'll be in our best behavior. Um, welcome, David. I, thank you. I'll, I'll miss Alexi's penetrating comments, but we'll try to soldier on. Yeah. Yeah, and and. Yeah, make it as Greek as possible, you know, in solidarity. <laughs> okay. So we're ta- we're talking copita to the proceedings, okay. exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll get some drachmas out. Um. <laughs> but, yeah. but so we're talking the debt ceiling bargain, which has not, at time of recording, passed, but seems almost certain. Uh, you know, we have a few defections from the right and the left aoc and bernie say they're not voting for it you know somewhat justifiably because it's like a bad bill from their perspective Um, conservative a bunch of the right wingers aren't aren't uh going to vote for it but they have already um admitted defeat basically there's a piece in semaphore where they're basically throwing their hands up saying they know it's going to pass and it'll probably make it through the senate too with like 70 votes Yeah. I mean, Um, the only the only question and
1: this will be figured out probably as we're doing this is uh, the question of the rule. So uh, in the House, you vote on the rule to approve the rule and then you vote on the bill. And usually what happens is the rule is a very partisan affair. No, the majority party always votes for the rule and the minority party always votes against it. But because of the controversy here, this is one instance where uh, McCarthy might need Democratic votes to vote for the rule. And uh, the Democrats have said, no, minority. they don't we don't vote for the rule. You figure it out, McCarthy. So they're making them sweat a little bit. But uh, I mean, ultimately, I think it'll it'll get handled.
0: Yeah, it seems to be. Certainly for the purposes of production, at least hope that it goes through. So we not to yeah, then we'll do some
1: radical changes after that. But uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think we are fairly safe with this one.
0: So, um, can you explain to listeners what is in this sucker? Maybe we could start out with, you know, you've wr- written a couple of pieces for the news, the X state newsletter we've been doing, and we'll link to those in the show notes, but. For for the purposes of podcasting, maybe you could start out with a TANF, that is to say, traditional welfare and food stamps. uh, Okay, we'll start
1: there. I mean, uh, the the big stuff comes in the spending cap, but we will uh, we will mention these these work requirements, which came kind of late in the game, became a red line for McCarthy and Republicans and Democrats essentially tried to minimize the damage from these. Initially, McCarthy wanted uh, uh, work requirements on Medicaid, which would have been really special because a, a good number of Medicaid recipients are Medicare patients who are dual eligible, which means they're retired. And <laughs> they, you know, putting yeah. work requirements on 70-year-olds, that that would have been a fun one. But um, uh, what we ended up with is, some changes to TANF that because TANF is a block grant, uh, welfare is a block grant, it won't actually change the dollar figures whatsoever. Anytime you get rid of someone from the program, you free up more money uh, to, to give to someone else. So, I mean, on a dollar level, it's not a change at all. Uh, it, it attempts to crack down on some practices that the states have been doing to make people eligible um, and it, it does, uh, there's a thing called caseload management that it attempts. But my understanding is it's only a pilot program with five states uh, for six years, and only after that would it potentially be uh, uh, opened up to all states. So, so I, think, I think families in most states are not going to be affected by those changes at all. Uh, when you're talking about SNAP, uh, there are essentially two sets of changes, and they are seen as opposites uh, and, and forces that cancel one another out. I think there's reason to question that. So uh, the, the one is that there are two work requirements in SNAP, one for uh, folks with children and another for folks without children. Uh, so the, the second work requirement for what is called able-bodied adults without dependents that is the the work requirement that's being affected here. And uh, what that does is that if you don't follow, you know, uh, I believe it's 80 hours per month, you have to work in order to be eligible. And if you aren't, if you don't follow that, you are time limited from the program. Uh, you can only receive food assistance for three months in a three year period. And uh, before this bill, uh, the work requirement ended at age 49. And what uh, the Republicans have done is they've extended it to age 54. Um, so that's, that's the part of the work requirement changes that are in the Republicans' favor. Uh, the one that the White House is touting is the fact that they exempted certain populations from this second work requirement at all. That includes homeless individuals, uh, uh, veterans, and young people who are in the foster care program uh, uh, who have recently gotten out of it up to age 24. Um, the, the claim that is made by the White House and also in the Congressional Budget Office uh, 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 assessment of the uh, of these changes is that on net there will be an increase in people receiving SNAP benefits, which obviously was, you know, to the great consternation of Republicans. What? More people might get food who are vulnerable? How dare uh, this happen? However, I I think there's pretty good reason to question that. And we actually, uh, by the time this runs, Luke Goldstein will have a piece up. Uh, that that does in fact question that. After talking to a number of anti-hunger organizations and folks on the ground who actually do this work, it is very hard to get vulnerable populations signed up for SNAP. There are no new resources in this program to, to in order to affect that. Uh, uh, many cities uh, require uh, like. Digital documentation, in other words, sending in your documents because there are still income requirements, right? And there's still other requirements that you have to abide by. And so sending in your application digitally since the pandemic has become fairly standard, how are you going to get homeless individuals to do that? Um, uh, also, uh, while a mailing address isn't standard, it's often preferred so that the caseworker can contact you for changes with the program, which happen somewhat frequently, as we are now seeing. Uh, it's going to be difficult to to do that in the case of, of homeless individuals or or other folks with unstable housing. And uh, there, it's just it's just hard to do to find people, let them know that they're now newly eligible for a program, and get them through the bureaucracy to actually fulfill the requirements of the exemption and 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 get them onto the program. And uh, I think CBO is assuming a certain perfect take up that is just not going to be in evidence. Whereas on the flip side, uh, being kicked out of a program because the eligibility requirements changed. that's very easy, right? Because all you have to do is miss a form and then you're not going to be eligible for the program anymore and you'll get kicked off. So uh, I think there's a lot of whistling past the graveyard in terms of uh, uh, what the Biden administration thinks about this.
0: Yeah, you certainly could Im- uh, imagine lot of people in that age bracket, you know, from 49 to to 54, who are in fact meeting the work requirement, but they're going to get kicked off because, you know, nobody pays attention to the minutia of congressional, you know, debate and, you know, like subparagraph 47, you know, for what then, you know, got to go down to the office and submit new income requirements. The other point I think To make about this is the, something Matt Brunig said, you know, that, that conservatives, I think McCarthy said this too. Um conservative intellectuals, they'll go on and on about how we, we're trying to help people restore and find the dignity of work. This is actually good right. for the people that we're subjecting it to. But in then the same breath, they'll exempt certain vulnerable populations that they don't feel like they can sort of subject to this, like veterans. And yeah. it just and tells you. And it's
1: a political calculation, right? Yeah. I mean, particularly with veterans, like, you know, I mean, we all respect veterans, but why they're more worthy of being exempted from this particular requirement than a 52 year old person that has trouble uh, because of health reasons, holding down a steady job uh, is, is I I don't
0: understand it very well. Yeah. Well, it's, I think it just tends to demonstrate that the real motivation here is just kicking the poor. Just just yeah. want to put the boot in a little bit. And but they don't want to kick veterans because they're worried it'll, it'll blow back on them. politically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Second, maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, permitting. I, I was kind of like it saved the the overall spending thing because that'll transition nicely into the next uh, bit. But okay. permitting. So we have a little bit of slight permitting changes. And then we also have uh, Joe Manchin's favorite pipeline being basically rammed through with all possible speed. Uh, can you talk about that? yeah we we've called it the pipeline
1: payoff, and uh, <laughs> we're we're seeing that. so, yeah, I mean, uh, at the outset of this, both sides were talking about, hey, we we should be able to find some common ground here. Uh, Republicans want faster acceleration on uh, energy projects in general, pretty much fossil fuel projects. Uh, Democrats want faster, Acceleration on uh, approvals for uh, transmission lines and for interconnection to hook up renewable projects to the grid, so that you can get energy from where it's produced to where it's consumed. And so, you know, is there a a common ground that can be struck here? It obviously was too big to to put into this deal at the last minute, and so they essentially punted. Uh, There's a thing called the Builder Act which uh, Garrett Graves, who was one of the key negotiators on the House Republican side, it's his bill. And so they stuck that in there. But really what the Builder Act is all about, it makes some very modest changes to the National Environmental Policy Act, which is sort of the the touchstone environmental policy. This is the one that requires environmental assessments or impact statements on all major uh, uh, federal projects, um, uh, federal projects, that is. And uh, what the Builder Act does is it says you got to have a single agency contact that leads this. You have to have better coordination between the the agency and other agencies it might have to talk to for the purpose of drafting these reviews. And then there's a page limit and a time limit on the reviews. Uh, there is no limit on judicial review of it. Uh, uh, you know, uh, environmental groups can still sue uh, after the environmental impact statement comes out. Um I should say that all of these things in the Builder Act have already been adopted by the Biden administration. They they already do an agency contact. They already do. They're already striving, at least, towards a timeline. And by the way, even in the bill, there's a timeline, like it says, two years for an environmental impact statement and one year for an environmental assessment. Uh, however, uh, you can just ask for more time like that's part of the bill. You know, it's not a hard deadline, to be sure, although sp- sponsors of the project can sue even that even if they sue to say they passed their deadline, they still uh, the agency would still have 90 90 days beyond that. So uh, it's not a really uh, stringent uh, standard. And uh, it's just it's stuff we're essentially writing down stuff that we already do. Um, So that's that part of it. There was at some point going to be a part a bit on transmission, Uh, uh, basically uh, expanding interregional capacity for transmission would have uh, hopefully accelerated projects. But instead, that got downgraded after pushback, I think, from Monopoly Utilities to a study and the study. Will take 18 months. That's the timeline. They have 18 months to conduct the study. Then there's public comment. And then they have another year to incorporate the public comment. So, uh, you know, we're talking about permitting in these long timelines to build something. And then they did a study with very long timelines on it. it. It just sort of recapitulates itself almost. Um, So that is a is a real just that's really nothing. When you put a study together, that's how Washington says we don't want to do anything about it. And then you had the pipeline payoff, um, which, uh, you know, Manchin, after the Inflation Reduction Act passed, was promised a vote on his permitting bill and his permitting bill had a bunch of stuff in it. But it was pretty clear that the only thing he really cared about was approving the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Uh, which is a pipeline that goes through Virginia and West Virginia and gets uh, uh, gas, natural gas uh, from the Marcellus Shale area over to the southeast. And uh, it's been beset with, with legal issues, particularly around water quality. Uh, it's lost in court several times. And basically what this bill says, and this can segue into something you wrote, Ryan, yeah. um, what this bill says is that Uh, uh, All all pieces of, of this pipeline are hereby approved. And if you have a problem with that, you can't do anything about it. And if you have a problem with this bill, you can only sue in the D.C. Circuit Court, which has been friendly to this pipeline. So uh, it's kind of a belt and suspenders approach to say, uh, stay out of it, courts, stay out of it, judges, we're not doing this. And while this is a really kind of bad outcome, uh, it is kind of interesting in terms of how it uses Congress as a way to counteract uh, certain forms of judicial review.
0: Yeah, it's it's a pretty remarkable divergence between this thing you know, where they're saying, okay, we know that there's a huge backlog of projects in the interconnection queue, and we really need to get uh, electricity from the west to the east to counteract, you know, with the, the when the sun is shining at different times, and when there's wind is blowing it in different places. And then uh, they say, okay, we're going to do a study and in uh, like two and a half years we'll come back and read the study and see what it says (laughs) that if 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 uh if it really does the bleeding obvious is really that obvious and then on the other uh you know side of the equation they're like okay this pipeline needs to go through somebody is you know somebody wants it we've decided on this and so it's just like nope we're ending all possibility of anyone stopping this for any reason basically they 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 say um you know, all the, all the permitting and, you know, the way that laws are written, it's like every possible permutation, I guess, to, to fend off right wing, uh, you know, judicial, you know, tendentious mis- misrepresentation, but like all the permits and documents and, uh, right. l- rigmarole that you have to go through that's all approved and no court can review this decision and if you don't like the us saying you can't review the decision you can only go to the dc circuit court will have sole jurisdiction i mean this is this it's like you know firing a cannon through the thicket of like bureaucracy that normally you know determines how this sort of thing happens but the the wild thing to me is and I, i mean i guess we've we've got some somebody looking into this but i don't know if you've heard anything uh about it before but you know you pointed out earlier um in a conversation that this really is not great for republicans um you know be like Politically, probably like it's bad for the Democratic Party, like demoralizing, probably like Democrats in general don't want this. But Manchin does. And Manchin can go back to West Virginia now and say, look, I got us a pipeline. It's great. Jobs, jobs, drill, baby, drill. And, you know, it'll be something that he can run on in 2024. And this is one of the seats that that Republicans are I would say, almost certain to win anyways. But like this reduces their chance uh, a little bit. So, right. you know, where is the the pressure to put this into the, you know, Republican ransom uh, note over the debt ceiling? Very strange.
1: It, it, it's pretty crazy. I want to talk about judicial review after this. But um, what I've heard is that. This didn't come from House Republicans, because as you say, Republicans don't necessarily want to extend a a gift to Joe Manchin. It came from the White House and the White House saw it as fulfilling their prior promise to Joe Manchin to get a vote for his permitting bill. Now, there's nothing in this bill that that is connected to his permitting bill except for the pipeline. So it just kind of shows you what he was really about with this permitting effort. He's he's not really that concerned with, you know, promoting renewable energy projects or anything. Um, But the fact that they didn't get anything else out of that trade is is just insane to me. I mean, Joe Manchin right now is blocking all EPA appointees of the president from getting a vote on the floor of the Senate. I mean, You'd think that that would be a decent trade, (laughs) like we'll give you your pipeline if you stop blocking our appointees. But there is no evidence that that blockade has stopped. Uh, Manchin refused to hold a hearing for the chair of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which is actually engaging in permitting reform right now. But because it's now at a 2-2 deadlock because he wouldn't hold a hearing for the chair to get renominated. Uh, that has has been thrown asunder and, and there's essentially nothing going on at FERC. They didn't, you know, make some as far as we know, they didn't make some promise like you'll actually allow our FERC nominee to go through uh, in exchange for this. So there was it was what they say, fulfilling a past commitment, which uh, uh, is apparently the commitment was we'll get your pipeline done. It wasn't we'll pass permitting reform. But I want to I want to go back to this about because there's another part of the bill which also denies judicial review. uh, And it's actually a a part that is would have been really scary. Uh, It's a part called administrative pay go. And what this means is that there's some Republican executive orders in the past that have said anytime you uh, promulgate a regulation, anytime you finish, finalize a regulation uh, and it costs money. Uh, to 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 conduct whether it's for monitoring or enforcement or whatever, uh, that you have to then cut a regulation that also costs a similar amount of money in in kind of a pay as you go trade. Like every everything you put in, you have to take something out. Um, this this would have been kind of a one way ratchet for deregulation. It would have been pretty bad. Um, but they gave broad waiver authority to the Office of Management and Budget that can just waive this for a variety of reasons. Uh, they can just waive this pay restriction. And in the bill, it says the, the, there can be no judicial review of the Office of Management and Budget's determinations as far as waivers are concerned. So they're stripping that jurisdiction from the courts. And you wrote a piece uh, a while back, I think a year ago, about how uh, judicial review is is super stringent in the United States, much more than other countries. And Congress has, uh, I mean, in this case, Congress has the ability to counteract that and that that's a pretty positive thing. Uh, if they, you know, this this no judicial review thing should be just a macro button that they throw into every single piece of legislation. Right.
0: Yeah. the, the It's it's remarkable that it isn't used more frequently. You know, they really could have stood to put one of them in Obamacare to saved everybody a lot of time and money. Right. Um, but the be- <laughs> the best example of this, it's happened a number of times in history. But there's a case called Ex parte McArdle, which I mentioned in the article, Um from, from earlier this week, which, which was about, uh, one of the, um, uh, reconstruction, uh, cases of arre- uh, people being arrested basically for like inciting terrorism against the government during military occupation of the South after the Civil War. A guy named McArdle and he sued, uh, you know, filed a writ of habeas corpus that made it up to the Supreme Court and Congress before after oral arguments, but before the case was decided, quickly passed a law stripping the jurisdiction of the Supreme <laughs> Court from this case. Right? It, it was, you know, it's impossible to imagine, you know, Congress a acting that quickly, but but b, you know, being like, oh boy, we don't like this Supreme Court. This the wind is not blowing in our favor, so we're just going to preemptively cut the legs out from under this case. Um And look, why is that
1: bad? Right? I mean, the the, the whole point here is that. You have uh, folks who are elected by the people every two years or every six years in the case of the Senate and uh, versus an unelected bureaucracy that uh, is, you know, part of it, of which has been installed in in a fashion that looks anti-democratic at best and uh, downright uh, insidious at worst. And so. You know, the, the separation of powers is a bedrock of our constitutional system. And, and if the, if Congress, which has the power to limit jurisdiction on, uh, various, uh, case laws, if they want to do that, why can't they?
0: Yeah. I mean, they have the, you know, it says explicitly in the Constitution that that Congress can have exceptions and regulations to to the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, but it also has like the inherent power to set up the judiciary. You know, it's like the the way the Supreme Court operates is determined by statute and it's funded by congressional appropriation, you know, so like the, the Congress is supposed to be the core of the constitutional structure. And half the reason the Supreme Court is so powerful is because Congress just doesn't do what it's supposed to to do right. it doesn't and as, behave and, right and
1: as you've written uh you know the constitution was written at a time where factions were seen as dangerous and they they expected congress to act as a congress to protect its powers and authorities uh not to have factions of Republicans and factions of Democrats in Congress and the the faction that happens to be controlling the interests of the Supreme Court to work in tandem with Congress, even if that means giving up their own power. Uh, That was sort of an unexpected result of uh, of the constitutional process. And it's led us down this path. However, in this bill. In uh, parts of the Inflation Reduction Act, in parts of the infrastructure bill, you've seen Democrats more interested in limiting jurisdiction. And and so maybe we're seeing a trend here.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's certainly, you know, I don't think, you know, as I said, there wasn't anything like this in Obamacare or, you know, the other laws that were passed back in the 2009 Congress when, you know, fondly remembering when Democrats had like a 60 vote margin in the House and a, and a 10, it was 60 vote had, in the Senate. Yeah. Yeah. They had yeah. 60. Yeah. yeah. For a few months. Right. Um, right. Before they whiffed that special election in Massachusetts. Oh, right. those were, that was a great time. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, but yeah, I think, you know, as a, as a, we get new generations of people coming up, you know, and there's just less institutional deference to a clearly corrupt and also like like clearly uh, right wing media poisoned Supreme Court majority, you know, yeah. that like this. Is, I know. mean, I, I just learned about the infrastructure
1: one that it, it has to do with broadband funding and the administration of broadband funding. And it's a really crazy one. It's uh, the assistant secretary of commerce. Uh, who is running that program, the head of the National Telecommunications uh, and Information Administration, uh, can make any kind of ruling, and it can't – this is in the statute. It cannot be uh, uh, challenged in a court unless it was uh, – they can prove that it was done through corruption or fraud, and that's the only way <laughs> that they can challenge anything. That, that's pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, let, let, let's see where that leads.
0: We need to return to tradition, as those, uh, you know, those right. racist statue avatar right. accounts on Twitter would say. Right. Um, I thought we might, uh, you know, for our next little bit, talk a little bit about, you know, how we got here. Um, mm-hmm. You know. We will get to the spending cap part, which is kind of oh, the wait. main part of this bill, right? No, let's let's talk about that. Okay. Uh, I, okay. I, I We got distracted with talking about, uh, <laughs> part about McCart- the courts yeah um right. The, so, yeah, break us down, you know this better than me, the the overall yeah. like spending amounts and then this the this automatic continuing resolution that will pass if Congress doesn't do its right. its normal budget thing in September. Right. Got it. So
1: yeah, I mean, the this bill really operates like a bus- a budget resolution it says we have a certain amount of money that the government is allowed to spend in its discretionary accounts for the next two years. Uh, And that amount of money essentially freezes uh, non-defense spending uh, in 2024, uh, you know, relative to the previous year. Uh, And it gives a, a Um, a boost, uh, basically the number that was in the Biden budget for defense operations, military operations um, in 2024. And then both of those accounts get to go up 1% in 2025. Uh, You know, because of inflation, obviously that's lower than inflation. This is a real cut, particularly to the non-defense side of the equation. Um, uh, There are supposed... Uh, I mean, it's a it's a confusing document, because if you look at the actual numbers, the numbers are well below the 2023 levels. You know, uh, it's it doesn't look like a freeze. But what's supposed to happen is that money that was rescinded from COVID aid, in addition to a a to be to be announced uh, 10 billion dollars per year that's supposed to be taken from the IRS funding that was put into the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, that's supposed to sort of backfill the non-defense uh, discretionary budget to pull it up to that 2023 level. So uh, if you see the CBO score on this, uh, those what I just described, these rescissions being put in to backfill the NDD, the non-defense discretionary part of the budget, that's not in the text of this bill but it's presumed to happen in the appropriations process. So the because it's CBO can only score what's in the bill. It looks very drastic. It says 1.5 trillion dollars over 10 years in terms of uh, you know the, the 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 impact of these cuts relative to the baseline. Uh, however, that baseline is much different because if you add 40 billion dollars into the first year of this and make that the new baseline, you know, obviously the baseline is going to rise in a different fashion than if you were $40 billion below. And that actually magnifies over time. It compounds because you're doing it based on rates of inflation. So, uh, you know, this is kind of a gimmick to let Republicans show that they got a lot of cuts in spending when they really actually didn't. Uh, that, that That's kind of what it does. And of course, the, the budget, uh, the bill does not account for uh, these cuts, 20 billion in cuts to the IRS. But of course that will lose money over time because uh, if, you, if you cut the IRS by that much, you're gonna have less revenue coming in because you're gonna damage the function of the IRS to actually collect what is owed. So uh, and overall, you know, these numbers that the CBO is flying out there are just not credible. Uh, but it's not really their fault. It's just the nature of the, the design. Now, uh, as you said, um, you know, these are top line numbers. And then you have to pass the 12 spending bills, annual spending bills that are passed every year in order to not shut down the government. Now, there could be a shutdown of the government at the end of September if all of these bills aren't passed. Uh, and uh, however, there is a failsafe that was built into this agreement. If by January 1st, which is three months after the end of the fiscal year, if by January 1st we still don't have all 12 of these uh, these, these spending bills passed, what will happen is an automatic continuing resolution. And it will ratchet down the, the, the levels to fiscal year 23 levels minus 1%. It's called the penny plan. It's why Tom Massey, who is a Republican Freedom Caucus guy who's on the Rules Committee, it's why he voted for the bill in the Rules Committee, because they put his penny plan in there. Uh, uh, Anyway, um, but the real effect of this, because you have to compare now what would happen if they pass the spending bills to what would happen if they don't pass the spending bills. And if they don't pass the spending bills— the brunt of that will really be focused on defense. Uh, the, the, it's a $37 billion cut to defense if they don't pass the spending bills. Uh, a major, major cut to defense, whereas the, the, the cut to uh, non-defense would be something like $3 billion. You know, we're going to lose money on the non-defense side either way. Uh, it, it's not that much of a difference between passing and not passing the spending bills. But defense would get a huge hit. It's like a ten percent cut in real terms, adjusted for inflation. And uh, this was put in there to force Republicans and 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 folks who you know worship the military, uh, which you know it's not just limited to Republicans, right? There are plenty <laughs> of Democrats uh, who do that too. Um, it it it's intended to force them to pass these bills, these spending bills, without any gimmicks, without any gamesmanship basically honoring the agreement that was made. And uh, I'm not convinced that they're going to be able to do that. I mean, it was hard enough to get <laughs> this thing done, right? Uh, the idea that, that 12 spending bills are going to pass between now and the end of the year, I, I, I no one's ever lost money betting on congressional incompetence, right? And uh, so, you know, the question for Democrats, progressive Democrats, anti-war Democrats, Democrats who say, Uh, you know, the defense budget is Pentagon budgets way too high and the IRS budget is way too low. We we you know, we keep pouring money into the weapons of war and we don't crack down on rich tax cheats. If the spending bills don't pass, then we've reversed that process. We have cut defense spending significantly, and because the $20 billion in cuts to the IRS aren't formally in the text of this bill, but are supposed to be put in by those appropriations bills, also you would get to preserve all that IRS money. So if I'm a a, a Democrat that talks about high Pentagon spending and, uh, you know, wealthy tax evasion, I'm thinking I don't want to uh, actually pass these spending bills at all. I, let's put some poison pills in there and force, you know, delay and, 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 and whatnot. Uh, I, I think, you know, there, there's a real dilemma that I think a lot of Democrats are going to have around these, the, this whole process as it plays out.
0: That's the end of the preview, folks. As usual, we like to mention that this podcast is sponsored by the American Prospect Magazine. So if you want to listen to the whole thing, Uh, You can subscribe at $5 a month if you want that, plus a free subscription to the website, uh, plus the opportunity for a steeply discounted print subscription. You can do that if you so wish at $10 a month. And uh, otherwise, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.